1: You've tuned in to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites and iTunes. Many of us go vegetarian before we go vegan. Why is that? Could it be just there is an ethical blind spot here where we don't see the dairy industry as a killing or suffering industry like the meat business? Dairy milk seems to hold a different place, deeply entrenched in the human psyche. Maybe underpinning this is because we've taken what is one of the most primal natural urges that is a maternal bond response with a newborn child, breastfeeding, and marketed the milk out of it. I mean, you can't beat that as a foundation, a launch pad to market your product as natural and necessary. Springboarding on top of all this is a marketing marriage made in heaven over the years. Embedding themselves in health and nutritional guidelines supported the growth of this powerhouse industry and made it easy to access new markets. But no matter how fancy and tailored dairy milk gets or how pervasive dairy milk spills over to other markets in countries craving the material successes of the West, two things do not change. The fact is, for every dollop of dairy milk you put in your coffee or tea, a calf must have been born for that simple pleasure. A calf is born and is promptly separated from his or her mother forever, about 12 to 24 hours after birth, so that all milk can be taken for human consumption. Mother cows have been known to bellow for weeks and search highly distressed for their calves. If male, the calf is killed, and if female, the calf will follow in her mother's footsteps of experiencing repeated pregnancies and traumatic separation from her calves. I chat about dairy with many illuminating guests today. Why is it China is encouraging dairy consumption up to three times the current amount in the new dietary guidelines when it also states to reduce meat consumption by 50%. Later on in the program, we chat with Mia McDonald, Executive Director of Bright Green, a policy action tank based in New York, and Wan Xin from the World Watch Institute about that. But we'll start with Elise Delsonier, who wrote a book titled Cash Cow Ten Myths About the Dairy Industry published last year. I'm Emma Townsend and this is Freedom of Species.
2: Okay, so I'm Elise Desoniers. I'm based in Montreal. I'm a French-Canadian writer, so English is my second language. I'm sorry if I make a lot of mistakes. I've written three books on ethical issues related to food, and there is one of them translated to English called Cash Cow, Ten Myths About the Dairy Industry, where... I talk about all these this misconceptions we have about the dairy industry. And beside that, I'm also one of the organisers of the Montreal Vegan Festival.
1: There is a huge disconnect between the reality of dairy farming when it comes to the life of the dairy cow herself and yes. her calf in the modern dairy industry and the consumer. Can you tell us how marketing has been involved with this and indicate also how much money is spent in these budgets?
2: Yes, that, that's a huge issue. For most of us, we grew up drinking milk and eating cheese and having no idea of what's behind. I've been vegetarian for a few months before I turned vegan. I remember the conversation I had with a friend on the street and, and I said, um, I don't think there's any problem with drinking milk. And uh, the cow is just there and she gives milk and we kind of Help her by taking her milk. And my friend said, Well, no, cows do not um, produce milk naturally. She has to give birth to a calf. And I was, Oh, yeah, maybe, yes. So I, I had biology classes like everybody else, and I had no idea when I was drinking my glass of milk that um, in order to uh, produce milk, a cow had to give birth to a calf. So, what happens to the calf? We know, uh, I guess most of your listeners are vegans, so we know that uh, the calf if it 's a female, she will become another dairy cow, and uh, if it 's a male, it uh, will become meat so and the cow herself, uh, after four or five years when our productivity diminishes she she also becomes meat so there's no difference between the meat and the dairy. But, in our mind, there's this huge disconnect and I think the uh, dairy industry, with its huge marketing budget, uh, have done amazing thing building that idea that drinking milk is natural, probably because, as mammals, we have been drinking milk when we were babies, but of course, milk from our mother so Milk is perceived as something pure and natural, something essential. So it was super easy to build on that and could, to construct this beautiful image we uh, we have about it. I don't know how big are the marketing budget of the dairy industry in Australia but in canada for instance it's it's more than 1 billion dollar that is spent annually it's as big as for instance the the, uh, the mobile phone half of the mobile phone industry so if you turn on tv you will see uh, mobile phone advertising everywhere but there's also milk advertising everywhere uh in canada again like uh, about a quarter of all advertising you see for food-related products are for dairy products. So dairy products are absolutely everywhere in cooking shows, in TV, uh, sponsoring sports events, everywhere. So that builds the idea that it's normal, natural, and necessary to consume dairy. Meanwhile, um, we have no idea of the life that is lived by the cows. The image we have is for cows in the grass outside being happy and happy to be exploited at some point, uh, which is, of course, far from the reality that is kept away from our eyes.
1: It's really interesting that you should comment that the marketing really has just built on that natural foundation of the fact that a human mammal is born, we have we're breastfed, we're uh, most of us. And it, it really has just really benchmark off that, that we feel that milk is thereby natural. And we don't really question the species that the milk is coming from. Absolutely. Because yes. of that. Yeah, that's very powerful. It's almost like the colostrum that's in milk has kind of brainwashed us as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> continuously. Has there been a surge in milk production and marketing since World War One? And, and and why was that?
2: There's many explanations. I don't know specifically about the market in Australia. I know for UK, United States and Canada. At the end of the 19th century, there was a lot of issues, uh, health issues related to uh, milk consumption. The pasteurization was not widespread, so a lot of people got sick consuming milk. So the industry was kind of not in, in, in its best stage. And in the beginning of um, the 19th century, al- around 1920, there was a lot of uh, malnutrition issues uh, in North America and Europe. And uh, the dairy producer partner with nurses and nutritionists, the early nutritionists, to promote milk somehow like um, an insurance policy, something that you should consume in order to get all your basic nutrients. That's when uh, milk got in the schools from the uh, 1920, 1930 until now depict milk as this insurance policy for kids in school, simply because the dairy industry was the first to bring the nurses and the nutritionists and all those help that were telling mothers and teachers that that product was good for their kids. I would assume that if the meat industry would have been that clever, that would have changed probably what we distribute in school but milk became the good milk the good meal you have to consume in order to get all your nutrients and they started to weigh the children before they were taking milk and after they were taking milk just to show that drinking milk helps children become fatter and in better health and all of that so mother came to believe that, um, came to change their mind about milk that was a dangerous product uh, to milk that is a super good products for their kids' health. And it became necessary to consume dairy. What we've seen when we look at the data is that those kids were, they were drinking more, uh, consuming more proteins. Yes, but uh, the consumption of milk made the amount of proteins from other sources decrease. So it, was kind of a shift from uh, plant-based and uh, animal-based protein to milk protein. So it's not clear that it was it had a good effect on the long term. But the idea that it's necessary to consume dairy in order to be in good health was in all the mums' mind. And meanwhile, the advertising strategy focusing on the health benefits of milk and the lobbying to create a food group for dairy product was already there. So the first Canadian food guides that we have is from the early 40s. And at this time, uh, dairy products
1: had already their own group in the food guide. The title of your book is Cash Cow. Why is it that this term is so often used in reference, like something is a cash cow? Can you just elaborate more on that?
2: That 's a good question when we talk about a cash cow
1: it 's some things
2: that produce in an infinite number and I think it's the it's the way we perceive the dairy cow. A dairy cow produce milk in huge quantity and it will never end. And so that's the way we perceive cow. And I think it's also maybe the way the dairy industry perceive the consumer, that they will spend all the money they they can on dairy products because they are convinced that it's uh, natural, necessary, and normal to consume them. So cows are cash cow because they, by their exploitation, they make the dairy industry pretty rich and they produce huge amounts of milk, a lot more than they were producing natural and we consumers that are not aware that it's not necessary to consume dairy products and all of that are also the cash cow of the dairy industry.
1: You are tuned into Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves on 3CR 855 AM. We are speaking with Elise DelSognier, an author based in Montreal who has written a book called Cash Cow, 10 Myths About the Dairy Industry. She takes a really insightful look at the dairy industry and how it has persuaded the general public of the naturalness and value of cow's milk in the human diet. No matter how cheap milk gets, it's way too expensive on the animal welfare front and the environmental front. Elaborate in your own words, what you think is the most incomprehensive thing about the dairy industry. It's hard. I'm like, I'm not a cow and I don't know exactly how she lives
2: her life. But for the studies I've read on cow suffering, there is two big things that are completely awful. First, the separation from the calf. All the study we have show that it's a traumatic experience. I was reading a news article. It's somewhere in the States in a village. The people living in a village were complaining about the noise coming from a dairy farm. So they called the police because they didn't understand what that noise was. In fact, that noise was a cow crying for a baby. And she was crying for days and days and days. And the answer from the sheriff was, there's nothing to worry about. It's absolutely natural. All the study we have show it's a traumatic experience. I mean, that cow, she is crying like many others express their suffering when they are separated from their calf. I think it's, it's a super traumatic experience. We have another study where a cow gave birth for a second time. And that time, the farmer was worried because she didn't produce milk. And at that time in the States, uh, in Wisconsin, the cows were still free outside. And a, a veterinary came, Dr. Ollie Schever, and she examined the cow, and the cow is perfectly fine. and Nobody understands what's wrong with her. The fact is that she gave birth to two calves, and she remembered the first time that one of the calves was taken away. So that time she decided to hide uh, one of her uh, babies, and she spent her day with her baby outside. So that's why she didn't have milk because she was giving the milk to her baby she was hiding, so she was brilliant enough to know that she would lose one of her baby but to hide the other one and that's that's amazing that shows how the cow is is intelligent despite what we say and how difficulties separation from
1: her calf is for. You are tuned into Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. We are chatting with Elise Sonnier, author of a book called Cash Cow, 10 Myths About the Dairy Industry. Elise was telling us about a cow who hid her calf from a farmer as she was used to her calves being taken away. Uh, there are many stories of this around the world where cows try to hide their calves because it is extremely traumatic that with one of the most maternal mammals in the world, we routinely and systemically take their calves away.
2: And another difficult experience for her is just the amount of energy needed to produce that much milk. We compare the amount of energy required to produce that much milk in a day to one day riding the Tour de France, the bicycle race. So if you ride, if you race in France during a Tour de France for one day, you won't have any energy to complain about anything after. So the life of the dairy cows is completely awful. It's probably one of the worst in all the animals exploited for their body or their product. But we, we don't see that, and I think we don't see that mainly because we are deeply convinced that it's necessary to consume dairy. When I met dairy farmers and I was telling them about all the ethical issues I see with that exploitation, they were telling me, yes, but we have no choice. Yes, we have no choice. People need milk, and this we have no choice, people need milk, I think explains Everything explains why we keep our eyes shut from those terrible life Until we uh, change our mind that we, on the fact that we don't need milk, uh, we won't be able to see that
1: suffering. Can you tell us how this is a gender issue, Elise?
2: It's funny because I became a feminist while I was writing uh, my book, Cash Cow. In Quebec, we have... It's a pretty good country for gender equality. There's still a lot to be done, but it's, for instance, better than uh, in the States down of the frontier. And... I was living a pretty good life, having a pretty good job. So I didn't see any problems with feminism. I I thought that feminism was for people uh, the age of my mother, not for me. And uh, while I was reading Cash Cow, I remember writing a sentence, cows are exploited because they are cows. Their body is exploited. Their baby is taken away from them. Uh, We are not listening to their voice, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, damn, that's exactly like women. And I started reading uh, on feminism after I wrote that sentence, and I became a feminist and a feminist activist. So there's many, many links to do between feminism and the life of dairy cows. First, those cows are exploited for their body. The same way we exploit the women's body, they are also made invisible. Uh, Carol J. Adams, in the sexual politics of meat, coined the concept of absent referent. In when we drink a glass of milk, the absent referent is the body of that cow that gave our milk for us. That is completely hidden and forgotten. The same way when we exploit human women, for instance, in pornography or uh, in prostitution, the life of those women are also completely forgotten. So there's many, many parallels to make between them. And we can also talk about sexual exploitation for for cows. They are forced to get pregnant uh, through artificial insemination. They are forced to give their milk. Uh, to the milking machine. So it's also a kind of sexual exploitation. Many authors think that the empathy that we have for our sisters, our human sisters, should be extended to our non-human sisters because we go through some of the same challenge. We can also see our patriarchy made that system uh, possible. It's mostly... Man with their vision that uh, everything should, that they control everything that made the animal husbandry possible. There's there's so many so many so many links to be done between sexism, racism, and uh, animal exploitation. And I think those all those those social justice issues must be fought together. Patrice Jones says that uh, to dismantle a structure, we must attack the joint uh, of this structure. And I think that uh, to end racism and sexism and animal exploitation, we should really fight for all those systems together because they're all linked together and um, have all the same, the same cause in the beginning.
1: How does one do that though? Is that just embracing more of an intersectionality approach basically or or do we need to create more organisations that are combating all of those issues at once? I think
2: first being aware of the other issues. If you are an animal rights activist, you should read about feminism. You should read about racism. There's a lot of racism within the animal rights movement, which is pretty, pretty white, at least here in North America. There's also a lot of sexism. If you look at PETA ads, if you look at, for instance, you see, we see those memes on Facebook of, uh, women taking the shape of a cow and showing the being milked like a cow and stuff like that but it's it's woman exploitation and we won't end animal exploitation by exploiting women and that to show that it's still a body and stuff like that so first as an animal rights activist being aware of feminist issue and racist issues is something we should really, really do. And then being part of the other social movement, because they are also important. And maybe dreaming of organization fighting all those discrimination together. I'm not sure there is, at least here in North America, organization doing that. But meanwhile, we could spend time in other organisations fighting for other social causes or just
1: listening and uh, trying to give our support to other causes. I guess it's just a systemic violence that is a common denominator in a lot of the issues there. And Absolutely. In the fallout from our drastic reduction in milk price here, we have had a senator in parliament suggest that we reintroduce milk in schools. Really?
2: That's terrible.
1: But don't you have a
2: high rate of lactose intolerance uh, in Australia with uh, all your citizens with uh, Asian or African ancestors that are lactose intolerant? Being able to digest milk is a white privilege. Most people with African or Asian ancestors cannot digest milk. So they have to consume milk with, without lactose or they have, they simply have to deal with a uh, problem digesting and they deal with it and they live with it because they think it's necessary. It's, it's just terrible. And I'm sure this senator that, um, suggested that uh, we should put back milk in school uh, is a white senator and um, that is, uh, is not aware that for many people it's simply impossible to correctly digest milk.
1: Just one more question. We haven't alluded to the environmental impact, especially when it comes yes. to water. Uh, can you elaborate on that for us? In a world that we are really scarily pushing ourselves in the corner when it comes to resources.
2: Yes, I was in California two years ago, and there's a huge drop in California. And in cafes, there were signs saying, in order to save water, we are not offering a glass of water with your coffee. But there is a lot of water just going in the milk. I don't remember the exact number. I think it's like
1: a thousand liters of water for one liter of milk.
2: Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, So for one liter of milk, you have 1,000 liters of water. As for in one liter of uh, soy milk, you only have 300. So the best way to cut on your water footprint would be to cut on your dairy consumption. And it's something nobody talks about. We talk about almonds in California, and the water footprint of almond is pretty important. But it's equivalent to the cow's milk. So switching from cow's milk to almond milk in terms of water consumption, is maybe not the best thing you can do but it's still better in terms of greenhouse gas emissions so it's better for the planet but again somehow the dairy industry managed to hide those facts and we don't we we don't see the water in the milk because we think that it's just natural and it's super green and it's the greenest product you can have that's also funny that we Everybody now knows that um, steak is producing steak is as an important weight on the greenhouse gas emission, but the cows produce as much meat as the mill that produce beef, for instance. And everybody forgets about that that producing milk is also produce a lot of greenhouse gas.
3: Lush green fields, peaceful scenes, lying in grass, bovine queens, maternity wards without walls or doors, wide open skies, new life born amidst rising steam, elated, relieved, they lick their babies clean, tentative steps, trusting eyes, an instant bond, it's no surprise. Mother and
4: child, little love a long way, you come back to feel the same way, mother and child, feel a love like, like mother and child, like mother and child.
3: No Cow Hotel This patch of grass Is more a patch of hell Those first few hours Are unsurpassed It just can't last All too soon They're torn apart Taken by trucks To the abattoir Industrial waste With a beating heart Cows crying As the calves depart
4: Mother and child Little love goes a long way same way, mother and child, feel love like, like mother and shine like mother and shine
3: Think dairy ain't that bad? It ain't a burger, but a glass of milk still takes murder. Another cow, another calf, another life torn in half.
4: Mother and child, little love goes a long way, you can bet me feel the same way.
1: You are tuned into Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the 3CR Airwaves and that was a tune written by Elizabeth Usher and James Donnelly and the track was MC Pony featuring James and Naomi titled Mother and Child.
0: Before I had a child, I was very aware of the outrage of the dairy industry but I understood it really only on an intellectual level. It was wrong to to tear away calves from their mothers as a vegan and as an animal advocate, it was easy to intellectualize that and go, yep, that's wrong. But it was only then as a mother that I could understand it on an emotional level. And I think for me, then understanding it on an emotional level, it became far more profound. It became a much deeper understanding. And the outrage was was far greater than when I understood it like that. Cows and humans, we're all animals. We're all mammals. We all have the same maternal instincts. I think possibly as humans, we maybe intellectualize it more, we overthink it, we complicate it further than a cow might. But at the end of the day, we have the same maternal instincts, we have the same grief, we have the same connections with our young. None of that is different whether you're a human or a cow. And It was only when I had the experience of becoming a mother that I then really, truly... Got it for me. I really, I then really got what the issue was and the outrage of the issue. It's rubbing salt in the wound that it's only after the mother and the child has spent bonding of doing the breastfeeding to get the colostrum that connection is huge, it's profound, it's enormous. And then they go, Oh, well, tough luck. And they rip the calf away. And the grief of the mother is is evident it's it doesn't take you don't have to be an animal behaviorist to see the grief that the mother and the baby experience that you're ripping them apart forever we only
5: had the one called daisy she was gorgeous she was a jersey Mum milked her every day and from my recollection, of, I, mean, I was only young, we milked her every day and that was a natural occurrence, if we didn't, she would have issues. So it wasn't like there was any hormone supplements or anything like that given to her. so I think it was just a natural thing. We had Daisy for approximately six years before we moved out and then my father had given it to the neighbours and I think they had her for a few more years after that.
1: Can you remember any calves born during that time?
5: No, we only had the two cows, or both daisies. The other daisy was a black angus, and she used to follow you around the yard. She was gorgeous. She just wanted apples. But they were both females. You know, there were no calving. There was nothing like that or anything.
1: It seems that it's harder for many to recognise the killing and suffering in the dairy industry, because we are mentally tethered to an idea of dairy that may have existed 50 years ago. Much has changed since then. Due to selective breeding, the dairy cow produces almost double the amount of milk. The rest of her body finds it hard to support the intensity of that production. So she often suffers lameness. There is mastitis. If anyone out there has had mastitis, you know that ain't pretty. It's chronic pain. And every 13 months, she's impregnated. And after nine months, that calf is taken away. So milk can be used for human consumption. In reality, most of us are way more likely to pass countless pairs of designer calf leather shoes, boots, handbags and jackets than hear the bellowing, the noise of mother cows in distress after their calves have been promptly taken away from them. Figures from 460,000 young male calves, bobby calves, are trucked off to slaughter each year in Australia, their bones barely strong or formed enough to walk up a slaughterhouse ramp. Usually after five to seven years, a dairy cow no longer produces a viable amount of milk for the farmer to keep her on, or she is just lame or very sick, so she is sent to slaughter. I also read the other day that there is an increased market price for bovine serum. Bovine serum is extracted from unborn fetal calves at the time of a dairy mother cow slaughter and is used for such things as vaccinations, even though there are many legitimate alternatives to be used.
5: My name is Adam Cardellini and I have previously done research where that took me on to several dairy farms across Australia from Tasmania up to Queensland There were two instances really that brought home to me what was going on on dairy farms was just unacceptable. One was in Tasmania where I went to a dairy farm and there was plenty of cows out in the fields but we sort of drove up into someone's driveway and up the top of the driveway there was a a fenced-off area, um, a pen, where two dairy cows were housed and they had these pink marks on them. One was limping very badly And the other one, I'd never seen anything like it. The other one had milk dripping from its udders. Its udders were so full that there was bubbles going up its chest. So there was the the full udder and it seemed like the the milk had under the skin bubbled up into its chest. It was very strange and I just couldn't believe that that it was happening and that the individuals were allowed to just sit there while they were obviously in serious pain. The second incident that really brought it home to me was when I was in Queensland on a incredibly huge feedlot dairy that had 3,000 head of dairy in an intensive feedlot system, so there was no green pastures at this place. I was sort of out the back of this dairy farm in the manure area doing my research and I was sitting there for days on end. One day I saw this ute come along and on the back of the ute they had two bobby calves or young calves and a large cow and they just they were dead and they just picked them up and threw them into the into the manure and I left that farm for uh, five days it was. I came back and I went to the same spot and since I'd come back I counted 17 new carcasses in that same spot. I think there was four adults, so four full-grown dairy cows, and the rest were babies, were small calves. And there was no reason that I could tell that these individuals should be being thrown out like manure. Other than, particularly the calves, other than that they were not being fed properly or they were not getting enough water. Because I did walk past the pens where they were keeping the calves and I'd see sometimes there was the water bucket tipped over and that individual wasn't getting water. And in, in Queensland where this was, it was a very hot place. So again, this just brought home to me the, just the mechanized way that we were treating these individuals in a dairy farm and that they were just Considered nothing. They were just expendable, thrown out like, like manure.
1: Most of us are outraged when we hear about factory farming, see sows in sow stalls or cage tens. A similar issue of confinement occurs for cows in intensive dairy feedlots.
5: So, what it was is there was a big, a huge milking sort of area, a massive big shed, but it was an open shed. And then there were a feedlot fencing. So they'd be walked down maybe maximum probably a couple of hundred metres to the milking area to, to get milked a couple of times a day. And then they'd be walked back to these pens. And within the pens, there was 3,000 dairy cows. So very tight quarters. And then they'd just go along and give them feed into troughs. Exactly the same as you'd think of a beef cattle feedlot except for these dairy cows would be there for four to five years they wouldn't have much room to roam around like the pens were probably 25 meters by 25 meters maybe maybe a bit more and then there was lots and lots and lots of these different pens so they'd get a whole group of dairy cows and bring them bring them into the factory for milking and then they'd put them back in the pens so living in a pen for your whole life is probably not something that's very nice. Only when I was speaking to another dairy farmer um, about this particular feedlot that I'd been to, he actually said that particular farm is known for having a high throughput, is how they put it, a high throughput of dairy cows. And where a normal dairy cow which is pretty bad, lives maybe four and a half, five and a half years. In this place, there was probably three to three and a half years, told by another farmer.
1: I'm also told that a cow can live up to 20 years.
5: They absolutely can. So, yeah, they're just just used and thrown away. And it was very, very evident that that's what was happening in this intensive feedlot dairy.
6: My name's Timo Seekes. I'm a volunteer with Animal Liberation Victoria. Yeah. I probably eat more cheese now as a vegan You know, (laughs) because there's some beautiful ones out there. Yeah, yeah. So we went to Dairy Australia. We wanted to confront the industry themselves and say, why aren't you showing people the truth of what your industry is doing to these cows and and their babies? You only show images of these green pastures and happy cows. That's how you promote it all. But uh, you're not showing what happens in the slaughterhouses. What happens on the farms to the calves, the abuse, the cruelty? Um, Why aren't you being transparent? So we tried to confront them that way, basically. There were uh, between 20 and 30 people that participated. We took in posters. They were basically different images from the slaughterhouse. Ended up speaking to the media representative for Dairy Australia. And we had tablets there. We were showing these workers the footage that, you know, from cowtruth.com. And some people seem to be more affected by it, but the the, the media person basically said, this is, this is okay, this is acceptable, this is the industry, this is what has to happen to get cow's milk, this is farming. Obviously, that's their point of view, and they were basically saying, well, you've got your point of view, we've got our point of view. And in a sense, they were trying to justify the abuse, the killing and the cruelty, basically. Part of the action itself uh, involved having a, a few mothers with their children in there and saying, look, we're, we're mothers, these are our children. How can you do this to, to other animals? They're feeling sentient beings. They care for their their babies like we do.
1: That was quite powerful, seeing yeah. women, they're mm-hmm. literally breastfeeding.
6: And that, that's essentially the purpose. If we talk about what's natural, the purpose of producing milk is to feed your own baby. It's not to be exploited by others to produce that milk to feed human beings. We don't need it. They talk about all these intolerances to milk products. It's like, well, you know, if it's not meant for us, you know, it makes sense that we have lactose intolerance and it causes other problems for us because we're not these little calves that are meant to grow into these big cows in, you know, a short period of time. You know, there's all these things in it that we don't need. Yeah. So we occupied the the um the space for. Was it four or five hours? We we decided to leave in the end because we had Channel Nine downstairs wanting to speak with us, and they weren't allowed up into the office space. So we sort of we felt like we'd achieve what we needed to achieve. But even with that, we sort of stayed a bit longer. We needed to make a point that just sort of entered the belly of the industry, where it all happens, like where it all sort of stems from this whole thing. So we wanted to make a point in that way as well. It sort of enter right into the middle of this industry that's supporting so much. Cruelty, suffering and violence. walk down the street and there's just advertising everywhere, on social media, everywhere you look there's someone trying to promote. There's so much spin just everywhere we look. that truth is being hidden in some way. Mm-hmm. And so that, it's great that there's, there's at least some people in our society and our culture who are willing to, to question what they've been taught to consume and think outside of the propaganda that comes from these industries and the corporations and, and choose something else.
1: Fifteen years ago, the Food and Agriculture Organisation of the United Nations was asked to propose a specific day on which all aspects of milk could be celebrated. World Milk Day was formed. It's often the case where if you create a day or a month about your product, it's a way of almost recruiting or galvanising publicity and reports around that.
7: Thinking about the response from the dairy industry on World Milk Day, I did see some articles getting around about the, their industry's fear campaign addressed to women, saying that they're not drinking enough milk and they always focus on this, this calcium angle, not recognising that calcium comes from plants and it's really, it's the only thing the industry really holds on to and keeps holding on to in promoting their promote their product. I think yeah. with the exposure of the industry, that's been occurring. There's obviously been a response, and this is basically it, I think, from them trying to scare people into consuming their products.
1: It was very pervasive. There were news items on all the mainstream news channels scaring women into drinking milk again through lack of calcium. But you think if they were trying to uh, be of real community service, they would have highlighted the many other ways – of absorbing calcium which are often better for the body to absorb from broccoli chickpeas dried apricots tofu i think is the highest calcium the, the list is endless
7: yeah that's right and we got a lot of power obviously this industry you know, people are starting to move away from drinking cow's milk as they are but the industry is going to respond and i think this is just one of the ways that they have responded
1: When money talks, large corporations can walk over animal welfare concerns and, more recently, dairy farmers themselves. I think we all agree in a business sense that this is not a fair situation with the dairy farmers. However, the buck seems to stop there. If you look at the public discourse around dairy in Australia's mainstream media this year, there was a major outpouring of emotion, empathy, support and heartbreak strictly afforded to the dairy farmers themselves. The life of the dairy cow and her calf remained invisible, even though economic pressure pressure can infer more neglect for animal welfare concerns. Dairy farmers are by reputation respected for their hard work ethic. I wonder whether this adds to the ethical blind spot we have when it comes to dairy cattle and their calves, making it even harder to see the suffering of the dairy cow as we are occupied with supporting our dairy farmers and how tough they have it.
7: Well, that's right. We, we tried to address that by attending to one of the rallies organised in the Melbourne CBD. Um, Animal Liberation Victoria were there and we... We happened to have some baby calves who had died from the industry. There were some mixed responses there on the day. Obviously a lot of people from the industry calling us, basically saying that we killed the calves and all these sort of irrational responses just to avoid you know, facing the reality that these people, those people who are in the industry are responsible for those deaths.
1: Dairy consumption is decreasing, but the industry's spinning wheels of marketing keep churning away into new markets. The ethical blind spot on invisibility of the dairy cow and her welfare is amplified in the live export industry. Dairy breeder cattle are not even covered by the SGAS scheme, leaving them completely vulnerable in environments where no animal protection laws exist. Now we'll hear from Mayor McDonald, the Executive Director of Brighter Green. Brighter Green is a public policy action tank that works to raise awareness of and encourage policy action on issues that span the environment, animals and sustainability. They're based in New York. Mia, I'd like to talk about how the dairy industry manages to keep a global stronghold with their corporations, how they thrive and survive.
8: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a multifaceted uh, phenomenon, like most of these things, right? So in the, let's say the global north, but that includes places like New Zealand, Australia, who are enormous dairy producers, especially New Zealand. There are certainly government subsidies of many forms, you know, direct subsidies, direct payments to things like feed crops that go into dairy production as well as meat production. And those can be in the millions and millions of dollars. There are also price supports in certain situations. There are also government programs to buy dairy, you know, to ensure dairy is in school lunches, to ensure dairy is part of programs to support uh, people in economic distress, you know, who might get food stamps or supports for purchasing food. In the U.S. right now, for example, there's enormous glut of dairy. You know, there's just overproduction. And I'll talk in a minute about some of the reasons for that. But basically now the government is buying huge amounts of cheese, milk, and putting those into things like nutrition programs for new mothers, uh, nutrition programs for people with very limited household income, uh, those kinds of things. So there's, there's that active promotion on the production side of dairy through various support subsidies and policies. And then on the consumer side, there's a push of dairy into different arenas because the dairy has been produced. So there's that domestically, but it also works globally. And one other thing is important to talk about is also government policies. So there is something, you know, subsidies, yes, that's that's concrete money. But it is also the policy of the US, of the European Union, of Australia, of New Zealand, of those governments, of those foreign ministries, of those trade ministries to be promoting agricultural products in the global south. And so there is that very, very strong support in a in a real foreign policy, you know, very high level public pol- uh, foreign policy to promote dairy as well as, as meat and, you know, other agricultural products as well but dairy too and one reason for this overproduction and i know it's also happening in new zealand of dairy is the demand from markets especially china and a lot of dairy producers in the global north including the eu the u.s uh, australia new zealand really invested in expanding supply of dairy so obviously adding cows Uh, Ensuring supplies of feed, often imported, to reach what they thought was an almost unlimited Chinese market. Now, as we know, China's economy has been contracting. uh, You know, we don't know all the reasons why, but demand in China has not grown as enormously as anticipated. So there is a basically a glut now of dairy. And then one more point I'll add. Sorry, and then I'll, I'll I'll stop for a moment. Is also in the global north. We are seeing dairy production decreasing. And again, we don't know all the reasons. You know, is it because people are aware of the enormous cruelty involved in dairy production, the enormous resources that go into dairy production, the global warming impacts, the health impacts? We don't know for sure, but dairy production is declining. So again, those producers in Canada, in the Netherlands, in other parts of the EU, in the U.S., are then looking globally to say, well, if our citizens aren't going to eat as much dairy, we want to sell this around the world. So again, the cycle, you know, is continued in terms of there are the subsidies, there's the foreign policy pressure, there's the pressure from the producers, and then of course there's agribusiness looking for new markets. So big dairy corporations like Danone, frontera um, there's a global dairy board that is looking to market dairy in places even where it's never been consumed normally and we did a research paper on this including across east asia where dairy has really never been part of any adult's diet but it looks like an untapped market is there a bird in the background there i'm in a place where there are quite a few birds and insects
9: my name is Wanqing joe I'm an associate with Brighter Green, and I'm also a research associate at the World Watch Institute based in Washington, D.C., and my work focuses on animal agriculture. So I look at industrial animal agriculture as well as uh, regenerative practices, the environmental and social impacts of them, and try to uh, see if there's a way to balance <laughs> the current food system from the Animal-based food site. Right now, China is a big importer of dairy products, but the uh, domestic production is higher than its import. And I think the market is encouraging the uh, concentration of the dairy production because the smaller dairy farms would not be able to compete with. The large industrial concentrated ones, and they're like in any other parts of the world, they're being squeezed out of the market. So, and at the same time, the government has policies that try (laughs) to address both sides. For one, they want to be able to protect the um, grassland ecosystem by having sustainable dairy industry there. But on the other side, they also want to have more concentrated and standardized industrial mechanized
1: dairy facilities. So I think they are working on both sides. The New China Dietary Guidelines have been described as encouraging a reduction in meat consumption of 50% for envirom- environmental reasons. However, the same guidelines strongly recommend an increase in dairy. Why? First of all, the meat consumption, I
9: don't know whether that's from environmental perspective because as far as I know they are concerned about the chronic diseases caused by overconsumption of meat products. I think that's the main reason why they recommend less consumption of meat, because they saw a huge increase in meat consumption in the past 10 years. Uh, And for the dairy issue, yes, it's a huge increase. I think it's almost like three times the consumption level right now. What it recommends is like three times the current uh, consumption level Per capita and the people who worked on who drafted that guideline quite openly <laughs> admitted that the guideline was influenced by industries all the time. So they tried to, they really need to balance the interest of uh, different forces, let's say that, because currently China's dairy production is higher than its consumption. So encouraging dairy consumption has always been an effort of the government and the industry and the fact that they're still perceiving dairy products as a part of the healthy diet and they're trying to improve the living standards of its people by encouraging the consumption of such products. And not like meat, the health impacts of Dairy is not that clear yet, so they don't have the pressure to limit dairy consumption, not
1: as uh, with meat consumption. Mm. Dietary guidelines and then being based on a health perspective but also quite you know, uh, openly about a, a consumer market-driven force of creating more wealth in society... What about the health? Is there not a high lactose intolerance within China? Yes, there is. But I don't think the industry <laughs> is concerned about
9: that. They, uh, I think the industry is trying very hard to maximise the consumption or the demand. They're trying to create, especially in smaller cities now, they're trying to increase the demand there first. Or, or let's say they're trying to create the demand for dairy products there because we know the people in China are not used to uh, drinking a lot of milk or uh, eating a lot of cheese or butter. So they would like to create and cultivate that kind of consumption habit in order to create this space for the market.
1: Do you think that then the environmental side, though, of dairy production where it's such an intense water user, for example, do they raise any kind of red flags in in policy in China? I think they do, but the problem is uh, what kind
9: of research do we turn to when we try to see clearly uh, how much water consumption is there in different kinds of dairy production systems? And what are the limitations of each approach? For example, when we look at the so-called life cycle analysis, like what we often hear, like how much water is consumed to produce one pound of milk, such things, there are limitations in what kind of water is used. Is that rainwater or is that irrigation or is that how much water pollution it causes? And a lot of times it's that concentrated dairy productions will use less water per unit weight of product. So if that's the result that the government is using, or if that's what they're trying to believe in, (laughs) then of course they will turn to concentrated operations, which is actually more sustainable, the pasture-based
8: systems. I mean, the water intensity of of all, you know, animal agriculture. Yes, dairy uh, especially. Um, I haven't seen that as an issue flagged by the Chinese government in relation to dairy yet. Now, again, even as China ramps up internal production, it is also looking to secure, you know, sources of production in other countries and supplies. So it isn't that the water will only be Chinese water, but that is becoming... Again, an issue of a global environmental discourse that countries, for example, Brazil is an important example of this, are exporting water embedded in products, embedded in agricultural products. And that could be a huge challenge going forward as well. And for countries like China that are water scarce, they are importing water, obviously not big vats of water, but water embedded in products like dairy, like commodity feed crops, like meat. And actually, Brazil is one of the world's largest milk producers as well and and looking for export markets. And Brazil has been seen as having almost a water surplus, but that is changing. You know, with Amazon deforestation, with destruction of the Brazilian Sahado, often for soy and cattle, the Sahado is a real source of Brazil's water. About 80% of Brazil's water, the rivers uh, begin in the Sahado. So this model, again, of enormous production exporting, using industrial model. Um, it is uh, unsustainable. But when those points become more apparent to policymakers, to agribusiness, again, I think that's an open question that, that people are trying to bring that awareness. But I don't get the sense that it's it's there in any uh, re- serious way um, in China or, or even elsewhere.
1: Who are the big players? Like who... Who are the major stakeholders when it comes to the dairy industry in China?
9: There are global companies, uh, but there are also uh, domestic companies uh, within China. But after the uh, scandals, the food safety scandals, foreign companies are trying to <laughs> explore the market in China as well, especially a lot of the Australian, European, Companies are benefiting from the food scandals about dairy products in China. <laughs> so, yes, there are different players in this, but uh, all of them are uh, big companies.
8: Something called Modern Dairy, uh, the Chinese conglomerate, has gotten direct payment subsidies, you know, investment from the government uh, to bring a kind of CAFO, you know, confined animal feeding operation system. For dairy production in China. And so dairy is really growing quickly there. At the same time, China is also importing dairy products as well.
1: Doesn't the encouragement of an increased dairy production and consumption cancel out the health benefits and the environmental benefits, for example, of decreased meat consumption in China?
8: My sense would be that China's meat consumption still vastly exceeds its dairy consumption. But obviously, if dairy is increasing, that is a challenge. Now, again, you know, it could be that these things don't increase as much as the West is expecting them to increase. You know, it could be that, as we said earlier, you know, many Global North producers kind of ramped up dairy production looking to China as almost an endless market. And maybe the Chinese will become more aware. I mean, certainly awareness is growing of the realities of dairy, the lack of a need for dairy in a diet and the real alien quality of dairy in Chinese foods. Now, again, The way dairy is marketed, it's not so much drink a glass of milk, although that is there certainly for kids, but it's more in the form of processed dairy, cheese, you know, and cheese, especially foreign cheeses, being seen as uh, modern and sophisticated. Uh, Ice cream, you know, flavored yogurts, the sort of things that disguise dairy, as opposed to just a you know a piece, uh, sorry, a glass of milk, but are very dairy based. So um, I think again, on a lot of these things we'll have to see what happens in the next five to 10 years. And um, it could well be that a number of Global South countries just do not develop the eating habits in the Western direction at the same level that I think agribusiness
1: and even Northern governments are anticipating. That's it for today. I'd like to thank very much Elise Solnier, Elizabeth Usher, Kate Gracie, Adam Cardellini, Tim Sikas, Adam Goronski, Mia McDonald and Wan-Chin Jo. See you next week.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.